I think as humans, we are all superheroes, but we need to get ourselves in situations. And what I mean is we need to embrace exiting our comfort zone in order to get ourselves in a position to essentially find our cape. Mile 40 was that moment for me. That's when I realized it. And I didn't up until that point in my life. I tell people that growing up under the circumstances that I grew up with, I thought it was normal. You know, like it's hard to explain cancer to a child. And I never understood it as a child. And I didn't even understand brain surgery when I was getting brain surgery as a 13 year old. I thought we all went through this stuff. In the years to follow, let's call it the next 15 to 17 years between then and Maya 40, I was just starting to unravel like, hey, these things happen to me. They don't happen to everyone. But what can I do with this, right? Do I have a story to tell? Will anyone care about this story? Should I keep this to myself? Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Alluvians, Alex Kremer. Welcome back to the Rising Leader Podcast. And if this is your first time joining the show, welcome to the show. This is your host, Alex Kremer. And I am just grateful that you are here first off. The purpose of the Rising Leader Podcast is to bring forth the new wave of rising leaders to help people feel a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of self-connection, a greater sense of community, and most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but definitely a very strong byproduct of living through all those things is produce phenomenal results. And in today's conversation, we got the awesome Bishoy Tadro. So Bishoy, what's up, man? Good to see you. What's going on, dude? You know, thinking of rising leaders, rising leaders need to push through some difficulties. And you and I just had some technical difficulty. And I think we both faced it head on. So I'm glad that we're in the room together. We got into about five minutes into recording this podcast. And we're like, you know what? I'm not so sure if this thing is recording. So I'm not sure if fingers crossed. But yeah. Tune in, everybody. We are here. We are here through adversity and all. But let me, Bishoy, just give a a little introduction on you and you can fill in the blanks here. So first off, Bishoy, we got connected from our awesome friend, Bobby Nittinger. And Bobby, if you are listening to this show, shout out to you, my friend. Bishoy, you are the host of the Mile 40 podcast, which, by the way, I've given it a couple of listens and it is a strong pod for sure. You're also the author of Break Barriers, How Setbacks Can Dare You Rather Than Define You. And you're publishing your second book, Audacious, Uncaging Your Authentic Self. So very excited to be catching that one in the stores and on Amazon. And also, you got a day job. You are a team lead account executive at the wonderful Salesforce. You've been there for about four years. And prior to that, you actually used to work at JP Morgan for about six years. So you've made the transition from the finance world to the tech world, which I'm excited to dive into that. And last but not least, you live in the beautiful and amazing New York City. You have a wonderful wife and a daughter who is just one years old. So I'm assuming you are catching some occasional Zs here or there. And I'm just excited to uh, dive in here, brother. Yeah, man. I'm really, really happy to be here around sleep. I'm very fortunate. My daughter sleeps through the night. I don't know how that happened. But also my wife and I are on different cycles. Like I go to bed early. She's a night owl. So it kind of works out with regards to who's taking care of the baby and when. I'm really honored for the opportunity to be on the show today. You and I have a lot to talk about and I can't wait to dive in. Hell yeah, man. First off, the fact that you've written one book, 
You are in the process of writing your second book. In addition to being a counterexecutive, I have a goal one day of writing a book. And one thing I always tell people is I am currently experiencing a chapter of my book and learning the lessons that are important for that particular chapter. I would love just to, to dive into your story here. And I'm assuming that was a big part of what Break Barriers was about but you grew up in a different place. You, you overcame some some challenges and you've really been doing some amazing stuff. So just go all the way back, man. How did this journey really start for you? Yeah, man. And, you know, one thing that you said really kind of resonated with me. All my life, I felt like I had a story to tell. It wasn't until I wrote the book where I felt like I had enough emotional content to share and I was ready to put it on paper. And it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, we think to ourselves, man, like if we wrote a book, it would do great. And, you know, the story would really kind of be able to translate well with other people. And life works in a funny way sometimes where you just get the sign and we'll, we'll talk about like how I did it and when I got the sign to do it. But we'll take a couple steps back and I'll share the backstory. I was born in Egypt. When I was three years old, I was diagnosed with leukemia. My parents made the very difficult decision to basically leave everything that they ever knew in order to immigrate to the States in order for me to get treatment. It was essentially a death sentence back then, given the medical treatment and the state of medical treatment at the time. A lot has obviously grown since then. We moved to the States in 1990. I did a year of treatment in California in the City of Hope. And then ultimately, my family moved over to Long Island, where I completed my treatment. And between the ages of 3 and 13, I had chemo, radiation. I had a couple setbacks along the way. When I was 13 years old, I had brain surgery to remove a golf ball-sized mass from the right frontal lobe of my brain. And after I got out of that surgery, when I finally got a clean bill of health. And, you know, there was a lot that went into it. It was diagnosed to be a brain tumor when I went in there. My parents thought that we were a little bit in the clear a couple of years before that. So obviously, it was a twist that nobody saw coming. As I was going through that surgery and in the recovery room, it was a six-hour surgery at NYU. You get into the recovery room and you get out of brain surgery, your entire body is essentially swollen just from all the inflammation and, and from top to bottom. And you're taped up. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to think. Like you really can't do anything without being in just horrendous pain. It was actually on my 13th birthday when I had that surgery. And I remember kind of making a promise to myself and coming up with this mantra at that point of break barriers because everything leading up to my 13th birthday just wasn't working. You know, I wasn't fitting in socially. I got bullied a lot when I was younger. Just, you know, I looked different, especially with the treatment. The treatment put on a lot of weight. I wanted to play sports and compete, but I had to deal with the side effects of the medicine. And, and so I was always the last guy on the suicide lines. You know, I'll never forget that, you know, because now I'm a runner. And back then I finished last every single time. It was in that hospital room in the recovery where I just decided, all right, like enough is enough. Anything life puts in front of me, I'm going to navigate. So now I'm going off to high school. And I realized that I had to kind of implement the lessons that I had learned going through what I went through in every arena. I knew with making friends, you know, I was going to have to fall down on my face a few times. So I tried and failed with a bunch of different social circles, trying to figure out where exactly I fit in. When it came to playing sports, I realized that I was going to have to get cut a couple of times before I actually made a team. And I went to this big Friday night light school on, on Long Island. Everybody revered the football team. And I didn't have a football background, but I really wanted a jersey and I really wanted to be a part of the locker room. I never had a locker room experience at that point in my life. I tried out three times for a team that doesn't cut anybody. 
And I made it the third time, reluctantly, but I made it. And I remember just being so excited to have the opportunity to just be amongst the team and to say to myself, like, hey, like what you told yourself in the hospital about having to fail in order to succeed, you weren't wrong. You just had to keep showing up. And that's how that worked with that area of my life. Fast forward, I move on to college. I went to SUNY Geneseo for my undergrad. I graduated in the heart of the financial crisis in 2009. I wanted nothing but to work in investment banking at the time. And it's crazy, right in the heart of the financial crisis. But growing up on Long Island, a lot of my parents, a lot of my friends' parents worked in banking. And you just saw the comfort of that lifestyle. And I decided I wanted it. When I was in high school, I worked for a little asset manager on Long Island doing some administrative work. And I just saw the environment and I liked it. Obviously, I graduated college at the worst time. And so I actually graduated unemployed. And I remember a conversation I had with my college counselor who essentially told me that our school doesn't generate bankers. So, you know, if you want to work in banking, you're going to have to figure it out on your own. So I came back and I, again, thought about the kid who was 13 and, and, and the promise that I made to myself. And I said, I just need to be able to tell a story, right? I had an accounting degree. They teach you that accounting is the language of business. And so if I could speak this language, maybe I could figure out a way to knock on a door and, and get in there. I also decided to do my MBA my first job was I was a recruiter. I was a recruiter placing public accountants. I had an accounting degree. And so I got to network with all these CPA firms. I came across a CPA firm that was looking to hire a junior accountant. It was through a friend of mine that knew the partners. And I was like, hey, like, I have someone. And I gave them my resume. I ended up getting the job. And when I got that job, I decided to start my MBA simultaneously. And the reason I did that was because I remembered I have a story to tell. I'm still going to break into banking. This is just the next part of that story. So I started doing my MBA simultaneously. I was working full-time through busy season as an accountant. I hated my job, but I knew there was going to be a finish line and I just had to keep plugging away. And the funny thing about it was it wasn't my job. It wasn't my MBA that got me into banking. I was 24 years old. I was out with a couple of friends one night for a friend of a friend's birthday, had one too many beers that night. And one of the guys was like, hey, man, like, how's work going? And I just let it all out. I let it rip. I was like, dude, it sucks. I don't want to be here anymore. Life hasn't been working out the way that I wanted it to, but I'm committed to just following the journey the way that I told myself I would when I was younger and sticking to my guns around overcoming obstacles. And if I continue to do the right thing, I know that I'm going to break down the walls and get into a bank. Now, mind you, I didn't know too much about this person at the time. He was 24, 25. He's like, send me your resume. And this was like two in the morning on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The next morning, I woke up pretty hungover and I had a text from him that said, hey, you never sent me your resume. And I remember thinking, this is really weird, right? Like, 25-year-old kid. We were out last night. We barely knew each other. Turns out he worked at JP Morgan and he sat right next to the hiring manager who he ended up you know, becoming really buddy-buddy with. And he handed him my resume and he said, this is a good kid. Give him a shot. And the rest was kind of history. I was far from qualified from this role. I remember walking into 383 Madison Avenue as the investment bank at JP Morgan. It was the old Bear Stearns building. It's got this really gloomy feel to it post-financial crisis. And I remember immediately soaking in the imposter syndrome, seeing everybody walking around, knowing that I didn't feel like I belong. And I remember telling this outrageous story in my interview, trying to correlate what I was doing, auditing CPA firms to working on this desk, 
managing risk for exotic interest rate derivatives. There was zero correlation, but I just told this wild story. And I got the job. And I got the job really because of that kid who is now, he's actually the wedding that I'm going to this weekend. Good friend of mine. And it's a funny, funny part of the story. But from there, I got settled into the bank for a couple of years. I navigated my way into a role in sales where I always felt like I belonged. I needed to be working in front of people. I couldn't be behind a Bloomberg terminal and a bunch of screens. Once I got to the sales world within the bank, I took a sigh of relief and I said to myself, all right, you've proven you can get to where you want to go in your career now. But if you were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, what have you done to leave an impact on this world? And I realized I had just been chasing this career dream that really was nothing more than a resume builder. And what I had done, if someone were to give me a eulogy, really wasn't much to that point. I was looking for ways that I could seek out fulfillment. I signed up for a mentorship program. And I'll never forget this story. I was assigned a student in the Bronx. He was a high school student. He was really timid. And his mom spoke to me and she's like, hey, like, I just want to get him out of his shell. I'm afraid that he's never going to leave home. I remember inviting him to a Knicks game and we met at Penn Station. This was pre all the renovations. The kid was just so incredibly grateful that he got to see Penn Station. This was when like Penn Station was a dump. And he was just so happy to be at Penn Station because he had never seen Penn Station before. To me, I was like, it's like I'm taking him to a Knicks game. I got him good seats. And all he wanted was to just kind of cherish the moment of being in Penn Station. And it was really, really eye-opening to me seeing how grateful he was for something that I completely took for granted in my day-to-day. And it also taught me something about being a mentor around the fact that I think I was seeking a feeling... It was selfish in a sense. I wanted the satisfaction of knowing that I did something good for someone else without necessarily understanding what drives the other person and what I could do to make their life better and what I could do given my life experience to empower them and give them the tools that they need. So after that, I kind of took a step back and said, I need to figure out myself first before I help other people more. I started revisiting my ambition to be an athlete. Like I said, when I was younger, I had a lot of difficulty. I started exploring the fitness scene around Manhattan. I had a friend of mine who opened up a a spin studio. He was a founder of this big business that was budding at the time in New York. I started going to these classes and surrounding myself by a bunch of collegiate athletes, a lot of people who were already in incredible shape. And kind of similar to what I told myself when I was younger, I was like, listen, just keep your mouth shut. Just watch soak it all in, surround yourself with people that are better than you and and people who are kind of going to embolden you and people who are going to show you how it's done. And ultimately, I became friendly with these people. They encouraged me to join the running circuit. One day, a couple of months later, I ended up signing up for my first half marathon. Ultimately, that group got me into triathlons. And in December of 2016, they convinced me to sign up for a half Ironman. I was approaching my 30th birthday. If you had known me growing up, you had no, you would have known how absurd it was that I was signing up and paying to do this race. For those that don't know, it's a 70-mile race, a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. For the next four or five months, I shut everything down. I wasn't going out. I wasn't drinking. I was working out twice a day. People kept asking me, why are you doing this? I couldn't answer them. I didn't really know, but I felt like I had to do it. And my parents were concerned. But inside, I knew I had to do this. I had never in my adult life pushed myself so far outside my comfort zone. And I knew I had to do this for a reason I couldn't explain. I got to race day. It was 93 degrees outside in Maryland that day. It was June 2017. 
I got through the swim, which in my opinion was supposed to be the hardest part of the race. I get out of the water. I make it to the bike part. That week was the same week as the New York City tour. For anyone that knows anything about bikes, the company that I rented mine from sent me a hybrid instead of a road bike. And what that means is essentially, instead of getting a Ferrari, I got a beat up minivan in 93 degree heat. So I'm like pedaling away at this thing and I got 56 miles to go. And I'm not a seasoned triathlete and I'm definitely not an Ironman. And people are flying past me. I tell this story about how this guy's tire burst and I pulled over next to him probably like 20 miles in. I didn't know how to change a tire. I had nothing to offer him. I needed to pull over. And I think if anything, I just annoyed him by being right there because he was clearly someone that knew what he was doing. I get past that. And then right around mile 40, I completely broke down. Everybody flew past me. There was no such thing as a time goal at this point because anything that I had been shooting for was already shot. And there were salts all over my skin. I was completely dehydrated. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm about to turn 30 years old and there's nothing more I'd rather do than call my mother who's at the finish line and just get the hell out of here. But then something happened that never happened to me before in my entire adult life. It was the first time in my adult life where I kind of transcended time and I went back to like, childhood Bishoy. And I thought for the first time about if he went through what he went through and he navigated everything that he did, you can figure out a way to finish the last 30 miles of this race. And then I started to think about some of the lessons that I had learned, in particular, the idea of celebrating small wins. My parents always celebrated the small wins that we got along the way. Any good messages that we got from doctors, any signs of improvement, I remember thinking to myself, what if I, instead of looking at it as 30 more miles, think of it as one mile 30 times? And what if I just celebrate every single mile until the finish line? That got me rejuvenated. And I never had a moment like that. And that's exactly what I did. I went one mile at a time for the last 30 miles. I stopped at every water stop. I had a lot of Gatorade at every water stop just to keep myself hydrated. The last mile, I pushed home and I crossed that finish line. I think it took me over eight hours to finish. And I remember thinking to myself, like, holy shit, like if I could do that, I could do just about anything. So I'll take a quick pause there because we haven't even gotten to the book yet. But let me take a pause there because that is where the name of the Mile 40 podcast was born. You know, I said to myself, there are moments in life and the one thing that unifies all of us as humans is that we all have our obstacles and we all have moments where we bottom out. Mile 40 was my moment where I kind of bottomed out. And those last 30 miles were how I figured how to pick up the pieces and move forward. And I said to myself, if I can bring on people to talk about moments in life where they just absolutely hit rock bottom, and then they share their mechanisms for building back up, I can't think of anything more impactful for you know the audience that I'm trying to cultivate. I appreciate you sharing all that. I mean, I think the one thing that stands out to me that's a consistent thread throughout your entire life, I mean, being diagnosed with leukemia and having that through the ages of three to 13, having brain surgery on your 13th birthday, making the football team, getting the role within finance and, you know, all of this going to the gym and finding that community. The common thread amongst all of it that I felt from you is just community, really being involved in community, having others there to support you. Even, you know, you talked about being in the locker room for the first time and how valuable that was like going to the gym and starting to meet a few people and having them push you to join and start the half marathon and letting it kind of go from there. And I think that's really one of the things that 
many people are struggling with today, especially people who are in sales or leadership specifically, as everybody is remote, everybody is working from home, just trying to sell a product and hit quota, people are craving and missing community. And that's just what I see. That sounded like that was a big transition or inflection point in your life when you found a team and you felt empowered by it, you know, which is so many people are needing right now. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. Last year, we threw over four retreats and helped over 150 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders. And next, we got it going on May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area. So make sure you apply to alluvians.co to check it out for more. You're absolutely right. And another thing around community is it's just putting yourself around the people who have achieved or are working to achieve the things that you're looking to achieve. Like I remember when I first got the job at JP Morgan, I didn't know a single thing about what I was doing. And if you work on a trading desk at one of these big investment banks, they are literally speaking another language on these desks. And I remember thinking to myself and being intentional about, I'm not going to say a word. And for about six months, I really didn't say anything at work. And that was because I just wanted to soak it in. And I wanted to watch them speak. And I wanted to learn how they speak. I wanted to see how they react to each other. And honestly, the way that I ended up getting promoted and moving within the bank was knowing that if there's one thing that I know how to do, it's speak and communicate. Because I was working on a very technical side of the business that wasn't used to storytelling. And there I was building my whole life on storytelling. I just needed to tell the story in their language. To your point, obviously, it impacted my athletic life in the sense that I sought those people who accomplished the things that I wanted to accomplish. And I still, to this day, continue to do outreach and to reach out to people who are accomplishing the things that I want to accomplish in the athletic arena. And community is huge. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be the loudest person in the room. It just means you just need to be in the room. And that's the thing. You don't need to speak. You just need to surround yourself. Mm -hmm. You just need to pick up on the vibration that everybody else is putting out. And as soon as you do that, you can't help but kind of tune yourself to what everybody else is vibing with. So from there, you talk about that mile 40 and it was that 40th mile that you're like, man, I do not think I can go any longer. I just want to go to the finish line, call my mom and just go on home. But you kept on going mile after mile after mile and celebrating along the way. I know just based on knowing your story a little bit, that became such a pillar for not just who you are, but really the message that you've been trying to give to the world and through your Mile 40 podcast, through writing your book. Talk a little bit more just about what that Mile 40 has meant and also what that has allowed. I know you've been raising money for this. You have a massive aspiration of raising a ton more. Talk about what that journey has been like because the reason why I ask that question, there's many people right now who are seeking something more. Maybe they're doing great in their corporate job or maybe they're not doing great in their corporate job. You know, I know for myself for a long time, hey, I was getting great results from the outside looking in. People are like, hey, you're crushing it, Alex. But on the inside, I was like, what am I missing? This can't be all that life actually is. What is it? I've been working my ass off. I've been trying to become better at my craft, but what am I missing? But this mile 40 was an inflection point for you of saying, okay, 
what am I actually living my life for? What's the impact I'm trying to bring? What's the meaning that I have? So elaborate more on that if you would. Mile 40 and I was talking with someone recently was that was the moment where I found my power. I think as humans, we are all superheroes, but we need to get ourselves in situations. And what I mean is we need to embrace exiting our comfort zone in order to get ourselves in a position to essentially find our cape. Mile 40 was that moment for me. That's when I realized it. And I didn't up until that point in my life. I tell people that growing up under the circumstances that I grew up with, I thought it was normal. You know, like it's hard to explain cancer to a child. And I never understood it as a child. And I didn't even understand brain surgery when I was getting brain surgery as a 13 year old. I thought we all went through this stuff. In the years to follow, let's call it the next 15 to 17 years between then and my 40, I was just starting to unravel like, hey, these things happen to me. They don't happen to everyone. But what can I do with this, right? Do I have a story to tell? Will anyone care about this story? Should I keep this to myself? Once I got past mile 40 and finished the Ironman, I realized I got to do something, right? This is my sign, right? This is my sign to do something. So I decided that year to run my very first marathon. I decided to run the New York City Marathon. In order to run, I had to raise money for charity to get my entry. So I decided to raise money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. It just naturally made sense. I had to raise a minimum of $3,000. And I remember I wrote down my story on a piece of paper. I called it, the comeback is always greater than the setback. That was the title of the story. And I remember being very intentional, especially right on the back of mile 40. I said, I'm not going to tell a biography. What I'm going to do is talk about the lessons that I've learned. And I'm going to talk about the tenors that have brought me here because I know that people are going to buy more into something that they can take away. And so I talk about patience, perspective, and purpose, because those are the three things that my parents left me with that I'll never forget and that have guided everything in my life. I tell this story, and then ultimately I shove it in a drawer and I say to myself, I don't want to share this because if nobody donates, I'm going to look silly. About a month went by, and I was at the bank at that point, and I was starting to build a relationship with this one managing director that I felt like I can finally maybe move it from professionally focused and share a little bit about my personal life. So I show him this story and he looks at it and he laughs and he laughs because he says, Bishoy, you need to make your goal a lot higher. And he gave me a thousand dollars and he said, go. And I was like, whoa, that's all I needed. That brings me back to what I shared about me being a mentor previously was he knew how to light my fire. I didn't know how to do that several years back when I brought that student to Penn Station in the Knicks game. I just was looking for my own gratification. He had nothing to gain from this. He gave me the $1,000. He told me that I need to aim high, and he instilled confidence in me, something that to that point in my life, I didn't really know that I had even despite my all 40 because I shoved the story in a drawer. $1,000 turned into five, turned into 20, turned into 30. Eventually, my story got shared with NASDAQ, and they gave me a call, and they said, hey, we want to invite you to come ring the closing bell. So October 31st, 2017, a week before my very first marathon, working in the bank, I share this story because CNBC is on every TV, on every corner of the bank. If you work in a bank, you know that there's a lot of compliance and you basically need to get permission to do just about anything. But I knew, you know, I was like, there's no way anyone can give me a problem about this. This has nothing to do with trading or investing. This has no you know, conflict of interest. I'm just going to ring the closing bell as a charity fundraiser and a cancer survivor. So I snuck out of work at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock, went to go ring the closing bell, 
came back the next day and they were like, are you going to say anything about that? I, I was like, yeah, no, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know how to handle all the attention that was. If I was ringing the closing bell, I would be telling everybody, like so everybody would have known that I was doing that. It'd be, I'd be Instagram living that. I don't even do Instagram live, but I'd probably be doing something like that. I mean, that's a pretty badass thing. It was amazing. I mean, it was an experience that again, especially how naturally it happened, right? And you start to realize like the impact that you're making on people. And and I'm starting to get emails and, and notes and people saying, hey, like this person just got diagnosed or this person in my family is going through this. And your story is really kind of giving us some, some comfort and rest. And I couldn't believe the impact that it was getting. As someone who's naturally a salesman, I knew that I could push the envelope on this when it came to fundraising. And I wasn't going to settle for just about any number. And so I pushed till we raised $50,000 that year, which we did. And the story got a lot of press. I ended up getting during the TV programming of it on ABC, actually, like the ABC reporter was running alongside me, interviewing me during the marathon, which was a whole different story that I could tell. As someone who's ran the New York marathon, if someone's trying to interview me while I'm running, I'm like, yo, I'm knee deep in just being yeah. exhausted here. I need to finish this. It was my first marathon and, you know, all the adrenaline and the energy and I trained. But again, when it's your first one, you don't know what to expect out there. And so I remember, you know, they were like, hey, like we need you to run at this pace. So that way we make sure you don't miss the reporter. And I'm like, listen, like <laughs> Porter is not going to miss me. It, it was definitely, definitely a cool experience. But all that to say, I got back to work after the marathon, raised all this money. All of a sudden, I was on a commercial. I was featured during the ABC broadcast. I rang the closing bell at NASDAQ. Things that four months prior to that, I was at mile 40, and I didn't think a thing of myself. I got back to work, and I realized life is never going to be the same. Like, that's it. Like, I, I'm no longer going to be defined as associate at JP Morgan. I'm going to be defined as Beshoy Tadros first. And then whatever my career can go somewhere down the road on that description. So about a month or two later, I got a call from a competitor, bank of ours, actually. And they said, hey, we want to invite you to come speak to our investment bank about translating the success of fundraising to succeeding in a sales organization. And I'm like, what? They paid me. Paid me a couple of thousand bucks to do it. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know like I could do this. And here I am getting paid to like tell my story. Similar to the NASDAQ thing, I'm like, this is a little wonky. I got it approved because they were paying me to do it. But I remember thinking, huh, maybe maybe I can turn this into something more. And I was in love with this because I realized the impact it was having. Every event that I was doing, I was figuring out a way to bring it back to impacting the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and, and driving the mission forward. About nine months later, the idea finally hit me. Like I said earlier on, it always kind of dawned on me that maybe I had a book to write. I was seven years into my career at JP Morgan at that point. It was December 2018, sitting at my desk, and I Googled how to write a book. And I also Googled how many words you need to write to reach 100 pages, just because I thought that was a respectable amount of pages. I, I had no idea what I was doing. It was 20,000 words. I started bringing my laptop to work. My boss was in Houston at the time. I was taking my lunch breaks, and every day I was just typing away. To the extent of not knowing what to do, my favorite number was the number eight. And I just decided I'm just going to have eight chapters. Like it was all just kind of pulling it out of left field. Three months later, I finished that first draft, the 20,000 words. It was a very long word document. I remember looking at it and being like, I don't know what to do with this. It's just a word document. I reached out to a friend who went to Harvard and I'm like, you've got to know someone that's published. He did. And he introduced me 
that person looked at my Word document. And he's like, ah, oh, this is pretty good. Can I give you my editor? And I'm like, yeah, if you don't mind. And the editor was a godsend because he taught me a lot about the book writing process. He taught me that you can have a lot of good ideas. And he goes, you know, your Word document's great. But at the end of the day, writing a book is about getting the reader to flip from the first page to the last page. It's not about just having good ideas because if it's not told in the right way, it's not going to execute. And he gave me this exercise. He said, I want you to take out flashcards and I want you to write the 40 most important moments you've ever had in your life. An extremely difficult exercise. And I still have those flashcards in a shoebox. He made me write a thousand words for each of those 40. So I went from 20,000 words to 60,000 words now. And he helped me compile it and put it together and turn it into break barriers ultimately. And from the Google search to when it was published was nine months, which is incredibly fast for a book. But it's really a testimony to how hellbent I was to realizing that my life had changed once I shared the story and I needed to get it out there. And the purpose and the objective of writing the book was to help people channel the mindset to overcome obstacles, whether they be personal, professional, or on the playing field. And it was all based on the journey that I had. And I remember when I wrote it, I didn't have a goal of selling books. I said to myself, if just one person buys this book, then that's all I need. If one person walks away feeling they've been impacted by this message, that's all I need. It was far more successful than that. And I'll take a quick pause just to kind of see if you have any questions there before we get into what happened next. Yeah. Well, I think what's impressive with the whole story is it's not like you set out to do any of this stuff. It just unfolded. They pushed you to do the half marathon. And then your manager who gave you $1,000 for your charity pushed you to go bigger and then pushed you to write a book. And it just all unfolded. And it simply happened because you chose to embrace the adversity. You chose to break the barrier, as you say so well. I apply this to my life and so many people who I coach, develop, who I'm just in a relationship with. It's like, whether it be through a breakup, whether it be through a job change, whether it be through losing a deal, it's like there's always something that comes from it that's a gift. And it's really freaking hard to believe that while you're in it. But when you actually choose to have that sacred outlook of like, hey, what am I meant to embrace and to go from here? Stuff just unfolds. And that's a mindset shift right there that you're embodying. So keep on going. What happened from there? So you you wrote that first book and then it's just continued to unfold. As I got connected to the editor about three months after I finished that first draft, that's when I got a call to interview for Salesforce. I remember knowing that I was switching industries or looking to switch industries that I had to do something different. I had a banker resume. I was in banking for seven years. I looked like a banker. I I remember walking out of other interviews and basically getting the feedback from tech companies that like, you're a banker. And I'm like, I don't like banking. I don't want to be in banking. And so I realized I had to do something. I completely redid my resume. I made it colorful. I had links and like made it look eye-popping in a way that is not very banker. And at the very top, I put a link toward what was going to be my book cover. At that point, the book wasn't done. I was just praying. I actually put like arrows on the resume, hoping they would just click on it. I got to the interview. And fortunately for me, the first question that I was asked was, tell us more about this book that you're writing. In my mind, I thought, bingo. If I get this job, I don't care what they offer me, I'm taking it. Because it was the first time in my career that I sat down with a group of senior professionals who showed an interest in what I was doing and who I was. Not to take a big segue from here, but you see tech companies moving toward this quote-unquote high-performance culture now. 
you know, there's no way to kind of explain this, but coming from a completely different industry in banking, the gap is so huge around being a person and being a number. This isn't a knock on JP Morgan. I think it's an industry thing. You were a number when you worked at a bank. What I really liked about this interview was immediately I felt like a person. That's worth taking a pay cut for. I didn't even have to think about it. I joined and a couple months later was when the book was being released. And I, again, coming from banking, I was unsure. Do I talk about this? Do I not talk about this? In the banking world, it's like, hey, here, you're performing, closing business. These are your numbers. Everything else stays outside. I got to Salesforce and I'm like, huh, people are interested. They're asking questions. They want to know more. And I announced the book release and I announced that I was going to be donating, you know, the majority of proceeds from the book release. Then, you know, one of the leaders in the business was sending out emails to our team being like, hey, like expense your tickets to Beshoy's book release. I'm like, whoa, that's weird because that never would have happened, you know, in my old job. Actually, Bobby was there. Speaking about Bobby was in my book release. And I started to see the buy-in and they were like, hey, you work in sales. You have this asset. They're like, use this to sell. So they had me like distributing my books to clients, which again, I was like, this is what I was built for. About Three months after that, December 2019, Mark Benioff's book, Trailblazer, was starting to get distributed. I got a tap on the shoulder from someone in marketing, and they said, hey, we're going to send out 100 copies of Trailblazer to the top 100 CEOs within this segment of the organization. We want to buy 100 copies of Break Bears and send it out with Trailblazer. And I was like, holy shit. Does anyone know that I Googled how to write a book a year ago? Does anyone know this? And my heart like sank, but I was overjoyed and doubled down on the conviction of this platform because you pointed out something earlier that kind of came up in that moment. I said to myself, so long as this continues to be a natural trajectory and I'm not pushing the envelope and I'm not doing anything that's unnatural, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I can see the impact that it's having on other people. That was by far my most exciting professional accolade was getting that tap on the shoulder. It had nothing to do with closing a deal. It had nothing to do with making a client happy. It had to do with the parallel of being in a place in my career where I felt like I could bring my whole self to work. And that is huge. It's a phenomenal story, man. I think that's what everybody's aspiring for. And it takes serious guts. Like it takes a certain level of not just authenticity, but serious vulnerability to first off tell people, hey, I'm writing a book and then to actually do it and then to share your story and to say, hey, what I have done has meaning. People care. I can feel your authenticity in your share of just like, hey, I'm just doing what I know best. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just here to share my story. And that comes through right there. And, you know, I think especially in this world of everybody's got a side gig and everybody's posting content on LinkedIn and, and whatever it might be like, yeah, people want to buy from people who they like, who they resonate with, who they know is a true person. The sales tactic and strategy is always important, but that's not what gets people to buy from you. What gets people to become enrolled is, do I actually feel a resonance with this person? Do I trust this person? And somebody who's really embodied and just saying, hey, I'm just here to do the work just like every other person here, that's a differentiator, brother. Like that's a massive differentiator of just being you and saying, hey, I'm just here to share my story. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's about owning who you are. And it took a lot of work. And I'm still learning. By, by all means, my story is not over. But mile 40 taught me a lot. 
that Google search taught me a lot. And I continue to push forward in search of uncomfortable moments to learn more. That is one of the most sound pieces of advice that I want people to get from this is the more you push the envelope when it comes to your comfort zone, the more that you're going to unleash. Well, we are just about at time here. So I got one more question for you, brother. And um, I think it's very relevant, whether you are in a leadership position or whether you are leading oneself. And the show is obviously called The Rising Leader Podcast. Bishoy, what do you view as the rising leader? The rising leader is the one that's speaking up for the people who fear to speak up for themselves. The rising leader is the person who is that voice, who doesn't hesitate to push the envelope on the matters that need to be breached. And I think that the rising leader is truly distinguished. I don't think there's a formula for being a rising leader. I think the formula is something that is distinct within or amongst all rising leaders. And I think that's what's really important when you think about it. Rising leader isn't a vanilla flavor. It's a flavor that is custom built. And generally that custom build comes from experiences. And it comes from being able to not only build off those experiences, but help people become the best versions of themselves through the lessons that you've learned. And and, and that's how I look at the rising leader. Every rising leader has that unique flavor right there. I love that, man. Well, Bishoy, thank you so much for being on here and sharing your story and just keep on doing what you're doing, man. We are cheering for you. I am cheering for you. I'm just grateful to be in community with you. And for those of you who tuned into this episode, thank you so much for being here. And if you like this episode, share it, subscribe to the show. And by the way, Bishoy, if people want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to do so? Absolutely. You can find me on Instagram, Bishoy Tadros. Mile 40 also has an Instagram page or on LinkedIn. Don't hesitate to reach out anytime. Similarly, check out Mile 40. Check out Mile 40. The book, Break Barriers, How Setbacks Can Dare You Rather Than Define You and Soon to Come Out Audacious, Uncaging Your Authentic Self. So Bishoy, thank you, brother, thank for you, being on Bishoy. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluvians.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. In the past 12 months, we've thrown over four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders on diving in deep on what really matters, but really mastering the craft and being in an incredible community. Our next Arise Immersion is coming up this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area, and make sure you grab your spot. Check out alluvians.co to apply there. Hope to see you there.